0: Welcome to The Moment That Changed Everything, where we interview notable creative people to gain insights into how they got started and learn more about the moments that shaped them and their careers. Today, we sit down with David Footman. David is currently a cinematic director at Ubisoft in Toronto, where he lends his craft to telling powerful stories to some of your favorite games, namely Far Cry 5, Splinter Cell Blacklist, and Assassin's Creed Unity. Different people
1: are getting different things out of games. And I think the biggest challenge we have right now is like this complete lack of disposable time. I mean, I make games and I fight like hell to get the time
0: to play games. He also did a stint at EA Sports, working on Need for Speed Shift, Godfather 2, From Russia with Love, Medal of Honor. Well, look, you get the picture. He's a stud. So have a listen, because there's a lot to learn, especially if you're making the transition from traditional film did I mention before gaming who worked on X-Men 3 and iRobot to the world of gaming. Enjoy. David, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Uh we've had other uh folks from Ubisoft on, but it's great to talk to you and your discipline today was at the Industry Night at Ubisoft uh and you demoed the new uh motion capture space there and uh it was just so amazing for someone like me who who doesn't really know that world to actually see it in action. So that was fantastic. At the time that we were introduced, though, I was you were talking to someone, and I was just on the periphery listening to you, and you looked like positively giddy about, and I want to say it was about uh, a, a new form of console, gaming console. And I don't know if you're allowed to talk about it, uh, but uh, tell me a little bit about it, because you just seem so excited about it.
1: Yeah. Um so there are two new consoles coming out in 2020 uh, for PlayStation and for Xbox. Uh, in addition to that, uh, Stadia launched like a month ago, I think, or three weeks ago. And so there's going to be a, like a, a streaming platform. I know Apple has a has a platform now for gaming. Uh, so 2020 proves to be like a pretty pretty insane year in tr- uh, for games and, and consoles and for and for the dev industry. Every time what we've seen in the last like. 10 years every time a new console comes out there's just an explosion of of creativity and content and so it's great for everybody so it's like a it's sort of like a a feast of content so uh we uh uh, we're presented all the specs and details on the new consoles and th- there's a sniper probably following me around town right now, <laughs> waiting for me to say the wrong thing because we're under a pretty strict NDA. There are even people at my own company that don't are, aren't allowed to actually uh, know the specs of the new consoles, but since we're already designing games for those consoles, there's a ton of people that have to know mm. the ins and outs. So, Um, What I can say is that between the new consoles and Stadia, it's a game changer in terms of how we make games and how we deliver games. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of the barriers that we've had in the past, uh, I think, uh, are dropping. And I think what you're going to see is a uh, like a broader ecosystem of games, kind of what you've seen in film in the last like 20, 30 years with you know, big, huge blockbusters, like can't fail blockbusters coming out in July. And then you don't see a lot of competition around that. Mm. I I kind of see the opposite. I kind of see with the new consoles and with Stadia and with all these other platforms, this whole new ecosystem of like games that are in the mid range and even smaller games, sort of satellite games that float around the big releases. And I, the reason it excites me is that you're going to get a lot more diversity. You're going to get a lot more experimentation. You're going to get a lot um a lot more innovation i guess in games because you know we're going to be making smaller footprint games cheaper games that are going to be allowed to take risks and uh you know tell different kinds of stories as i said with the the tech the with the 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 technology that that's coming out it it's kind of like taking the shackles off so we're going to be able to tell really different kinds of stories And, and this kind of touches like um multiplayer It touches like streaming. It touches how fast, uh, how quickly content loads. Like even thinking about like um, something you take for granted in film and television commercials, like you can jump locations. Like uh, I could be in Paris and I'll be in New York. I'm watching either a montage or I'm watching an opening sequence, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're intercutting between all these characters. Um, If you work in open world games, like I have for the last five or 10 years, you'll know that um, it's all happening at runtime. So the engine is creating these worlds and these characters moment to moment at runtime based on choices you made in the game. Um, So it's very difficult to suddenly jump 100 feet away, or I'll say 100 meters away to something else And show that full screen uh, without sort of a load time and so forth. So there's all this sort of so, and I'm really getting down to like talking about storytelling. So as a storyteller, if I wanted to do that sort of an intercutting sequence showing things happening in three different places, it wouldn't actually be possible at runtime. And I, you know, I think that what we're seeing now is maybe with new advances in technology, especially in streaming, like what you're already seeing in Google Stadia. I mean, they're doing all the they're doing all the processing, all the rendering. On their servers, so you're going to be able to do things you couldn't do in games. So I think that that's just like one kind of idea that that uh, I think is going to change how we tell stories. But it just um, well, we've seen in the past, is with new consoles. It just it's an explosion of new content and different kinds of content, which is exciting.
0: When you say cheaper game, you mean cheaper to produce?
1: Yeah, like yeah, like I think that. Y- I mean, when you're when games are two or three hundred million dollars to make, uh, and you're making them over five years, the stakes are so high, it's hard to take creative risks on those games. Many studios do, but uh, I'll say some studios do, but um, you don't see as much creative risks happening. And uh, so I, I'm hopeful that you're going to see sort of more middle sized games where we can really, you know, try different. Uh, different concepts tell different kinds of stories, um, and uh, you know, and you know, I don't. I think a lot of when I first started working in gaming, it was like we were all inspired by film and television. We watched a lot of media, and so we were trying in some ways to emulate some of those experiences we had. But I think it's an opportunity for us. I, I think you're seeing it already to be trailblazers. Like we're actually defining a whole style of narrative and storytelling. And I mean, the industry is so big now. I, I feel like we're already doing that. But just to you know, to be our own, to, to you know, to make our own mark. You know what I mean?
0: Well, I know you know one of the questions I had for you I was going to ask later, but since we're on the subject, you come from a tradition, more of a traditional, clearly, um, film background, and you know, my question revolves around, um, you know, making this transition from uh, a traditional filmic background to to gaming, and I know you know the spine. You know what's what's carried over. I'm sure is is it's storytelling, but using different tools. But um, what were the what are the biggest obstacles from going from a tr- traditional filmic background and then getting into gaming and and knowing the limitations of of both? I guess.
1: Yeah, I would say um, uh, having an understanding of CG and uh, and the pipelines and workflows around that is would have been would be the hardest thing. I was fortunate in that um, I was an assistant director, so I got into the film industry in, uh, would have been like early nineties. I was very young and uh, I was very, very ambitious. So I was, I worked really hard um, at sort of, uh, you know, trying to move up the ladder as quickly as I could. Uh, And uh, it was at a time when the industry in Vancouver was just exploding and, By the time I was, I think I was 28 years old, I was a first assistant director because it was so busy, they had no choice to hire me. I was like the youngest first assistant director, I think, at the time, doing like motorcycle stunts onto a BC ferry, you know, somewhere. And and people look at me and I looked really young at the time. They're like, who's this kid running the show here? And uh, so... I got in really young, but um, I, I I had a penchant for CG and visual effects. I noticed that sort of early on. I was really fascinated by um, by the magical qualities that you could bring with green screen, set extensions, like compositing, and all that. So, and we were starting to do that on some of the films I was working on. I think that the big like the biggest VFX film I worked on was Dreamcatcher. So that was uh, Larry Kasdan was directing Morgan Freeman. And uh, we had a lot of CG, a lot of set extensions, a lot of CG characters, and uh, I was on the second unit for that. So I did all the aerials, I did all the CG, I did the uh, the visual effects, all and, and working with diff- like I worked with uh, a stunt director, I worked with a, a visual effects director from Industrial Light and Magic. So I definitely got really excited and interested in what you could do in CG in film. And uh, so already I was really excited about it. And um, I started searching out films that had a lot of CG in them because I was very interested in them and I understood it. And I ended up working. Uh, I When I work on larger films, sometimes I'd be a, a second AD working for like, a, like a, an old school first AD, you know, who would have been from, you know, born in the 50s didn't really understand CG so he'd he'd be like the the militant sort of like running the set ruling the you know ruling everything and I'd come in and teach him how to break stuff down and shoot it in CG so that was pretty much X-men one I worked with uh, Don French and uh, and I got to uh, help break down all the CG for that like all of the uh, sequences required a lot of like physical effects CG effects and all that so I was really good at breaking that stuff down understanding how we would schedule it putting it on a call sheet and sort of uh explaining it to everybody so so that really set me up for my transition into games and um so i was in that sort of visual effects track and uh, the transition film was i robot the will smith picture Mm -hmm. uh with the robots and um they brought me in very last minute and uh like just scrambling uh Mm -hmm. to set up um a performance capture unit for the film um, cause, uh, I guess a lot of the vendors had like a, a clause in their contracts that said, look, we're, you know, we bid this much to do the film, but we require performance capture data. That's, um, you know, that's, that's actually married to the uh, live action data. So any, any scene you'd see Will Smith in that he was walking with a robot, they required mocap data that matched spatially to that. So we put a unit together we were sort of coming in on the tail of first unit going in and shooting robots and tying it in using click tracks and all kinds of other methods and uh, that was a huge learning curve for me and I met my mentor on that project and uh, that kind of propelled me into the uh, set me up for success
0: in video games interesting so um, so at that time were there a lot of other guys that were were as into CG and making that their discipline at the time or were you a very attractive person to have on because you were one of the few? Yeah, there weren't many people, and you couldn't learn it. Yeah, um, you were just you were just getting your, your your hands dirty and learning on the fly.
1: That was it. And I was I was reading uh, Cinefacts. So the only I mean the fastest way to learn about CG and visual effects back then was reading uh, the periodicals, the Cinefacts that came out every I don't I don't know it came out every month or every three months, and uh, and just meeting people on sets because it was changing so quickly. Um, you know, like we had I remember we had encoded cam on our robot, which was this sort of rudimentary way of tracking the camera and and actually compositing in real time sets so that you could frame your shots and see the set extensions. And so the director really wanted that I'd never and to so now, of course, we're doing incredible things like that live. Um, but uh, yeah, you just had to kind of figure it out as you went along and go and study it like yourself, just learning through whichever way you could.
0: So when you uh, meet your mentor, um, was his, was that person's background this, similar to yours or was it completely different? So did you go from like having like, you were the guy that knew the most in this world, but then you went into a new world where you were... You were dwarfed by somebody who had way more knowledge.
1: Yeah, I think at the time I was I was really good at breaking down scripts, and I was really I was really good at uh, as an assistant director understanding CG. Uh, so when I moved over to iRobot, that was kind of the first time I'd ever met somebody who came from like a completely different background is pure animation and keyframe animation. Like, but they work, of course, keyframe slash. You're you're also animating in Maya as well, so it's assisted keyframe animation. Uh, I met Andy Jones on iRobot in the first week, and uh, the first thing I asked for was, okay, well, um, I want to go down to L.A. with Andy and see what's going on in this pipeline and post-production at ILM. Uh, so there, that was down in Venice Beach, uh, Digital Domain, uh, that little campus down there. And, uh, yeah, I went down there, and it just sort of blew my mind. I was just like, oh, my God. I mean, th- it was the first time I'd ever seen... Um, Animation in Maya. So uh, Andy set me up uh, on the on a computer there with Maya with an animation of of, uh, of a biped climbing a wall, and I was just like, I scrolled it back and forth, and I thought, Oh my god, how are they doing this? This is this is incredible. And that was a that was motion capture data they'd captured early on. So uh, I became really close friends with Andy, uh, and I so I learned a lot when I was down in LA, and um, so. At the time, uh, I was kind of inventing a pipeline uh, for uh, performance capture in uh, in film, in the sense that um, I got my own edit suite next to all the other editors. I was bringing in all the data, all the uh, sort of the uh, non you know non linear edits from the uh, editors, and figuring out our click tracks and timing for where we needed to put the our uh, CG robots in, and uh, you know. It was figuring out what's the process for quickly figuring out what we need, uh, what's the spatial requirements, how do we build it quickly, uh, what's going to be keyframe, what's going to be performance capture data, all that stuff. And, And then also like at the time working in that technology, there was a lot of sort of, I would call them like Yahoo's that were motion capture companies we had we had a we originally had a motion capture company that didn't really know what they were doing They had kind of like a rock concert set up with scaffolding and it it looked great but then when we got the data back it was really noisy and the 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 retargeting to the skeletons didn't look very good at all they, they there was a lot of show but not a lot of uh not a lot of I don't know what you'd say. Just not, not a lot of go or <laughs> or craft. Yeah. So we we ended up firing them and bringing in another company. I think we ended up hiring motion analysis uh, down in Culver City, and we were setting up 15 by 15 foot volumes in like they'd fly up with the cameras and set it up when we were doing our shoots. Um, you know, creating our own process and pipeline to catch up to the to the live action on set because vendors were waiting for this data. You know, it had a time a really tight timeline. Uh, It was really exciting because I felt like I was on the cutting edge. I was learning something that I thought that I didn't think anybody else knew how to do. I got to work with editors. At the time, I was editing my own sort of shorts and indie stuff. So it was like getting, it was allowing me to do everything that I've been learning to do over the past 15 years. And I love CG so much, it was like merging everything. Mm -hmm. So,
0: yeah. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the storytelling um, aspect of what you do—I mean, I think about film. I think about actors. I think about their their relationship with one another and their human beings. And then and then you're thrust in. You're in. You're part of this world where I I and I'm neophyte, right? So, but I look at it and I think, well, they're all separated. Like, um, you're shooting physical aspects of of characters. But then there's voiceover and what happens when you separate those two things it's i know i know that the end product is very good but that's a totally separate thing
1: yeah when i when i first started doing uh performance capture um for video games that was the process i I called it karaoke acting so you would do uh you would record the audio you would get the takes just right. You would take that onto set and do a click track and match body animation to it. So you're kind of like karaoke acting on stage. It's kind of the at the time I was surprised that's how that's how the, it was done mm-hmm. because it was not it was not super uh, unified like in terms of the performance. You could see you could you could feel that it wasn't quite right in the data when you saw the final product. So it's really hard. Like that is one of the hardest things i think you can do is record the the audio and do the body data and the facial separately to bring it all together you need to be like a master chef and i rarely try it because uh right as i was getting as i as i was getting into the games industry we started unifying all of those so doing face body and voice all at the same time so that on stage it's all together it's only when things kind of go sideways and we're doing reshoots or replacing actors that we get into a position where we're having to like record the the voice later and assign it to the character um and then you know then you're getting into like it's, you have to really be a master chef to know how to how to time it out because essentially what you've got in performance capture is you've got body data so that's captured off of the marker suit um you've got um audio from dialogue which is which is captured off a lavalier and a, and a boom microphone and then you've got facial data and depending on your your pipeline that might be it's usually optical so there'll be a couple of cameras pointed at your face and then markers on your face and then we have software that learns um how to retarget that onto a face rig so all of those are kind of happening at the same time because of the technology it's possible to go um let's say i shot a scene I could go back two weeks later, and just put a helmet camera on the same actor and change some of the lines. And I would, I call that face replacement or head replacement. As long as it was in sync with what I did on stage, it would work. But if it was off by even half a second, when you're looking at the performance, the eye eye tracking is off a little bit. There's something kind of strange about it, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think that we're we're able to actually like I've read somewhere that we're able to measure like up to three thousand expressions on a human face so i think there's a lot of emotion and um there's a lot of story happening in the character's face that we don't even we're not even aware of Mm -hmm. so when you start sort of like rebuilding it from scratch things start falling apart and i think it's like a cumulative uh errors start coming in where it doesn't feel real i mean it has to feel human It, it has to feel you have to feel the humanity in the character so i think the first thing i did Uh, when I started in video games was fight really hard to unify that because it was one less thing I had to worry about. Hmm. I mean, it's hard enough to direct an actor and to find the authenticity and, and to find something that doesn't break the character or something that feels... Um, not false, something mm-hmm. that feels real. Like I mean, this is all in the craft, right? But if if you get that and you're trying to assemble it from three different things, like you can you could fall down in three other areas. So it's just like adding too much risk to the overall performance. So I fought really hard to unify it. I would say like 95 percent of what I shoot is unified performance. So I don't even have to worry
0: about it. Wow. Yeah. Because I was going to ask. I mean, I think um, you know when we think about the more traditional um, film we think of big name stars and and, and we think about it's 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 what you're talking about but in a human human form or doesn't have this layer of of so um like when does that start happening or has it already happened you mean uh like bringing in sort of recognizable names yeah like yeah. It, you know with, with the bodysuit with all the plot oh, points yeah. and all that kind of stuff and that is that is that coming soon is it already happening already yeah it's it been, already is i'd say it's been happening for quite a long time there's a lot there's a lot of it going on
1: like on you'll see it in the call of duty games um you'll see it uh you'll see it on a lot of titles where they'll bring in a name actor to do a performance and and i think that like if they're prepared properly their performance translates sure fine and what you'll notice is that you look at film and television right now there is a ton of performance capture already happening in that like you, any of the Marvel films there are digital doubles for all the characters right and those are sort of authored either by a stunt actor in a, in a pcap suit or, or the actor on a separate stage. so it's happening already. Hmm. so it's not like um, it's not like big huge name stars aren't getting into the pcap suit already. it's happening everywhere. So it's it's definitely part of the process, especially when you get into these big budget sort of Marvel Hollywood films that require digital du- doubles and uh, and like CG characters.
0: Right. Um, I know. You know. One of my questions was, and I did ask this of 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 Cameron and Patrick both when they were on, is you know, in in a world where anything can happen, whether or not that's a free a, a freeing thing or does it make life more difficult for you? I mean. Um, we talked about traditional filming and stuff and you have your location and those those set places where I see the world of gaming as it, it can be anything. And that seems kind of frightening. It's frightening for me to think about. But how, how is it for you and your discipline?
1: Yeah, it can be paralyzing when you don't have constraints. And I think it's kind of well known right now that sometimes, um, I don't know, like there's a story I heard about uh, a really famous pianist uh keith jarrett he's a jazz pianist and i think he was playing a show in paris and the piano was damaged on the way to the show and uh he could only the bottom like 11 or 12 keys were toast Hmm. and the top of the piano like the high notes were toast and he and he's a really particular guy like if you go to one of his concerts if someone like coughs the wrong way he'll stop and look at you and be like (laughs) what are you doing and so he went to his manager he said look i'm not playing the show just forget it this is it get me another piano and the manager said you're playing the show you're playing on that piano i can't get another one in time you just got to deal with it and so he played it he played it right and what was that that was cole it's a really famous concert called the cone concert part one and part two became his most famous recording ever like it dwarfed anything else he ever did And he played in a completely different way because he couldn't play the piano the way he wanted. He was constrained. And I was like, wow, he made the most beautiful art ever. Like it's, they're two of my favorite songs. So I think like it can be bewildering sometimes to be on a game and have no constraints. So we have to create them. Otherwise it's just, you just kind of freeze up and get lost. And uh, which means like having really, really clear lenses and creative direction when you're looking at the game because truthfully you can do just about anything. Um, meaning, it's like a it's a very malleable world. There's not a lot of physical constraints as to what you can do. Um, but uh, what I find is that if you really sort of sit down in your fundamentals and work with like less ingredients, you're often able to tell a better story. Um, just because you don't get lost.
0: Sure, sure. And I I think that's a and when it comes to creative vocations, I think that's that's very true. A more tightly defined situation and and then exploring creativity within that seems a a way less daunting than this open season on stuff um in terms of the themes and the ideation for games how much are how much of that is is driven by directors in other words like do you do you have ideas for games that you bring forth or is it more like we have this idea that's been um you know it's a it's in its infancy and we're going to need you to execute it how do because I think of the traditional world of film as as a lot of directors coming to the table and wanting to do something and express totally. creativity.
1: Yeah, it, it's really different in games. Like I've uh, so that's not something that I do. I don't pitch games. I don't come in with ideas for games. So I'm an expert um, for performance capture uh storytelling uh realization and so forth so the way it normally works is um uh there'll be like a project will be in early conception with probably a creative director a game director you know a very small core team and then uh, and then once they have a concept for the game that is fun and uh you know makes sense in the market that we have now then i'll be brought on and i'll generally work with the creative director um if there's a head writer there, I'll work with them or I'll hire a head writer or or be part of the decision that brings in the right kind of head writer. So th- there's like a, and the other thing that we, we've seen in the last 10 years is it used to be like a head writer and a bunch of other writers. Now what we have is the, uh, we have a narrative director because the narrative in games is so complex and it's become so moment to moment in gameplay. You need to have somebody that's super sharp, at understanding game design, to know how to inject story into moment-to-moment uh, gameplay, not just someone who knows how to write a great screenplay. Right. So succinct, uh, efficient dialogue is something that people spend years and years and years learning to do really well. That's a really specific discipline. Um, I would have a writer that just does that, like, or sometimes we bring in a consultant that helps, uh, you know, tidy up dialogue. But the but the meat and potatoes of it is like a narrative director and a bunch of other writers that are writing, you know, tens of thousands of lines that happen in the game, moment to moment, that are creating a world uh, that are reacting to a players' actions in the game because it's causal, right? Mm-hmm. The the stories that are most important i think in games right now are causal stories that players feel like wow i did this and now i'm getting a different story you know it is, it's personalizing the experience so when i come on uh like for an open world game i'll be working with a narrative director uh, a lot with the creative director um we some on some games we even have a separate realization director who's kind of like whose focus is sort of that player experience with respect to uh you know, cameras and, and, you know, uh, visual effects and, and so forth. Um, I tend to do, uh, realization, cinematics and story altogether. So I kind of handle all three and have everybody on my team. Well, how do you define realization? What does that mean? Realization is kind of like tuning all of the story channels outside of like the cinematic. So like what, like would be like a scripted event that happens in game. It would be some music that maybe that swells up as you go into a certain part of a set. It would be choosing perhaps a time of day. Uh, realization would be like changes you make to the gameplay camera. It's really like, it's like an experience. It's it's an experienced director that that touches like color, sound camera, focal length, like trying to create more emotion in, it's kind of, it's a mix of being an art director and a cinematic director Mm. and an editor, Mm. like, you know, tempo timing. It's very new as well. So narrative director and realization director are two very new positions, uh, that I've seen show up a lot. Um, because we're looking for the pizzazz, we're looking for wow moments. We're looking for people that understand how to create emotion with the craft, like with the, with the tools
0: it's um and again i keep i keep going back to this this comparison guy i guess i don't have anything else to compare it to but you know theater goers or movie goers go into a space and they sit in front of a screen and then the 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 director and the people involved in making the film then tell you the story and you're you're a passive you're passive in that you you're just taking in that that data and you're 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 sitting back and then in the gaming you have this totally other experience where you're you're part of it or you you know you're i don't know even how to describe what that is you're you're not i guess in total control of it but you are to a certain extent yeah how does how does how does telling a story change when when the person sitting watching and experiencing it is part of it or immersed in it how does how does that even work?
1: It's uh, yeah, that's that's probably why it's so hard for people to move from movies, film, and television into games. Mm-hmm. It, it's like a, it is one of the most complicated things you can ever face. Um, and within gaming, there's a spectrum. Like there are some games, like for instance, God of War, which is a very single player. Uh, you're on rails, and it's very. It's a lot easier to tell story in that kind of environment because it's uh we know there's a path it's like it's like how do you take a script and shuffle it and still tell a story and there there's no beginning middle or end anymore so that's been sort of the big challenge i think in gaming and so uh, uh the philosophy at my studio is that we're really pushing into player driven stories Uh, which is um, there's a lot of stories in the world. So we call that world storytelling and players go out and discover the stories that they want to discover. But we also have an element of logic and causality within all of those characters so that depending on what the player does in the world will change the kind of feedback and stories they get from those characters. So that's the most powerful feeling you can have in a game is when you feel like I am, Mm-hmm. I am here and everyone's reflecting back who I am because of the changes that I'm making in the world, because of how I'm interacting in this world. So storytelling has a, has a lot of logic and causal elements to it in gaming that are super complicated to execute on that. You know, that these are using systems. These are using libraries of, of, of say, um, imagine having a, uh, a, a gesture library for a bunch of characters and then we would be able to trigger different uh lines depending on what the player did and this is something that i've been sort of developing over the past 10 years is high-end triple-a cinematics with logic embedded in them so that characters that you care about characters that are that are playing the archety- archetypes in the game they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna say I see you and I and they're expressing back to the player actions they've taken in the game So that I think is the most powerful feeling you can have in a game and that's kind of where all of our storytelling might is going right now in open world hmm.
0: storytelling Yeah I mean uh, uh, and just if if we could just look at someone watching a film and seeing what they're experiencing themselves and then compare that to then gaming I think, I mean, I look at that and I go, wouldn't that be unbelievable? Like if if I'm watching a film and I'm so immersed in it, and I think about the films that I've seen that elicited that kind of emotional response. I mean, Tom Hanks in Philadelphia in that moment, and you're bawling. um, You know, will there be a time in the future where I will be immersed in a game and I will have that kind of, I don't know connection to characters.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think most people who've played The Last of Us, which was a, uh, a single-player game, came out I don't know ten years ago, would say that's the experience. That's the experience I had. That's the experience a lot of people had. So it's a bit of a uh, outlier in terms of execution, craft. Um, it it was a masterpiece. So and so so when I when I played the game, I. I like I couldn't stop thinking like geez like this is something I want to do like I want to be able to create um we call it the feels in player and this it's just using dramatic structure right that everyone in film and television understands I mean even if you just like go watch the opening of Joker right the new uh the new film in the first like what, seven minutes. It's just masterful, right? I mean, they create empathy. They create emotion. The feels is really strong. Mm -hmm. You understand the character. Like you have to do that in games.
0: Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's hard for me to think that way only because it's the immersive nature of gaming that I think is, is we talked a little bit about this before we started recording Uh, there's that phenomenon that happens where you're so immersed in something that time you lose time, you know, and that I think for in the gaming world is something that, uh, I would say it it probably happens to everyone, you know, that's not necessarily the experience, uh, when it comes to, um, watching movies and watching stories all the time. But with game, I guess, because I I guess, because you're, you're trying to achieve something, um, it takes you away into that into that world, such that I don't know if it, you know, does that disconnect you from the the emotional aspect? I mean, I think <laughs> I think when I think about gaming, and, and again, like for me, it's tough because I'm not part of uh, that scene that much, and I don't play a lot of games. But it's almost like it would cut off that being able to uh, um, empathize or. Really, really understand the feelings going on because you've got this other part of your brain that's functioning, which is I'm trying to achieve something.
1: Right, right. I, I think there's like a there's a really interesting relationship between the player and their avatar, and identity that that this identity, which is something you feel like, that you feel like this every day, like you have an identity and you express it, and people validate your identity when you talk to them, your friends and family or whatever. But I think when you're designing a video game, you have like a cast of characters in the game. Then you've got a player avatar, which is like a stand-in for player's identity. You're, you're writing with another character in mind. It's the player, right? T- to create sort of a feeling of, or emotion. I think absolutely, if you don't have a strong character need in a video game, then people just aren't going to play it. They put it down, and they they have lots of data on this, you know, game testing where they'll show like some games will come out, and people. I mean, very few people finish games. But games that don't have the hook that don't create the character need early on. When I say character need, that's the need of the avatar that you've created. If there isn't a strong need, then people are people drop off super early, like five hours in, and they're gone. And uh, so the day I think the date what the data shows is that. Um, People are really immersed. People people are emotional, but um, for different reasons. Sometimes because you've got completionists, you've got people that are really into collecting things. You've got people that we call immersed story writers that want to have sort of a character experience, an emotional experience with these characters uh, outside of their avatar. So we've kind of a, we've definitely been able. Well, I mean, you can break down as many different kinds of people as you like, but we've 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 done a lot of work at figuring out the different sort of um kinds of people who play games and what they get out of them. And I mean I can I'm sometimes I'm on the subway and I'll look over at somebody, you know, in, in mid 40s businessman playing Candy Crush, right? And I'm <laughs> yeah. like and I don't play Candy Crush, but I'm like I'm always amazed. I'm like, wow, like what is he getting out of that? Like is it mastery? Is it a puzzle he's solving? Is right. it about and it's interesting like Different people are getting different things out of games. And I think the biggest challenge we have right now is like this complete lack of disposable time. I mean, it's like where, I mean, for me anyway, I make games and I fight like hell to get the time to play games. Just with look what's happened with Netflix and Hulu and Disney Plus, like there's so much content everywhere that I still think that what you're seeing in gaming right now is incredible stories like the technology is allowing us to do really amazing things, and we're still on this old console generation, and uh, like stories that because you're adding in this identity and this sort of this uh, causality, I think it's like a it's like a it's a totally different kind of storytelling, mm-hmm. different experience, and I do believe that's why it's gotten so huge. Like I mean, it's like I don't know if I've memorized the numbers exactly, but I think it's the size of the film. The TV and the music industry combined, or something like that.
0: Ridiculous! It's a uh, lot, a lot of gaming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, talk to Patrick a little bit about this too. Um, and I'm sure, I'm sure the studios or whatever uh, look look at the, the targeting of like who they're talking to, and to your point, designing then designing games that appeal to those types of people. I think everybody has this idea in their mind of who those people might be. And maybe it's safe to say that when you see the the plethora or the the types of games that are out there, you are talking to a certain person. But like, as I said to him, you know, like could there is there, could there be a time where where, you know, it's 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 completely romantic. And that's the whole thing. Yeah. And and I'll double back and ask you this question because when I go back to how do you balance the the passive aspects of the games? Because I remember growing up in a time where you know you'd skip that stuff, right? Like the dialogue between the characters. Yeah, let, let's get to the let's yeah, get let's, to, get, to let's get, get to the yeah. shooting. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And people would just skip that or whatever they and kind of go. Yeah, and I and I guess so. And so like, is there are you balancing that more, or is there is there a need and people want more of that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think mean, what well, what we do, what my team does anyway, um, we look. I mean, cinematics, so that's kind of how I got into this business with cinematics. Um, so performance capture being my, uh, my uh, secret power and then uh, cinematics. I would say like in most games now, um, the amount of cin- the cinematics account for like less than 5% of all the content in the game that actually tells story.
0: Wow, really? Right.
1: It'll be in every trailer. Mm-hmm. It'll be it'll be upfront when the game is being sold when we're creating an identity for the game or branding the game, but it really is less than five percent. There's so much more storytelling in the game that is occupied by. W- different channels whether they're scripted events in game whether they're um like uh events that happen in in just dialogue only from a character whether it's environmental storytelling lighting whether it's like like you you find uh like a wreckage of something that's telling a story so like we're constantly trying to push story out of cinematics and into those other channels to create more of a symphony because that exactly it like nobody wants to have a story told to them they want you know so we're we're trying to move the story into those other channels so when you get to a cinematic we use it for what's really important which is the feels where we create an emotion i mean it just comes down to like primal storytelling it's nothing is ever it's not changing all the best stories are primal storytelling period there's nothing else that that is that is beating out great primal storytelling so if we just use our cinematics to reveal character and connect to primal emotions you know that really drive uh, drive us to feel things. Then we're going to create moving sort of experiences, and uh, you know, and you know, create evoke you know evoke wonder in players because you're going to be creating the symphony. I think that's really it. I, I, I'm crazy focused on craft right now because you see when it's done well in film and television and on a game, and it is a number of people that have to come together with it with craft with with expertise in dramatic function psychological functions like you look at joseph campbell like the work he's done on uh defining what a hero is and the archetypes i feel like the maturity that's required now in gaming is for everyone who's authoring games to understand those 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 basic fundamentals of storytelling and um and you know understand like stories are basically a way for us to understand uh what it is to be human and so the games are also an expression of that i mean they at at their base level it has to be that so the more we understand that the more we can actually use the craft to create better experiences and that's kind of where i want to get to now like i don't i i want to leverage all those learnings from film and television even though we're such a different medium to create stronger experiences
0: yeah like i think i'll ask you this question because um, I think most people still look at them as separate worlds, but are, are are the worlds coming together or do you think they'll always be separate? In other words, I'm talking about the traditional film, yeah. film worlds, you know, or is someone going to be walking up the steps um, at the Oscars uh, that's the author of a game or will that ever happen?
1: Yeah, like I I, I feel like. Um, well, put it this way, when I got into the games industry, a lot of other people from film and television jumped over. So that was like back in the in the 90s. So there were a lot of compositors, a lot of directors, like people that were joining uh, film, uh, joining the games industry. And not very many lasted And there, for like lots of reasons. Super, like super complex. The results are really hard to get. And it's really and story back then wasn't super mature. So it was kind of like just do a bunch of stories um, and they don't necessarily connect to what you're doing in the game and, and so on. And the tech really wasn't there yet. So a lot of them sort of fell off, but I, I do believe that what we're seeing now as we mature in this industry, we're getting better pipelines, better workflows. We're, we're, we're telling more personal stories, which, which you don't see in film and television, although Netflix is, has got a interactive show now, right? So, they, so they're kind of getting into the interactive story to, 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 uh, telling space. I, I think if anything, um, the, the way that I hope games are maturing right now is that we're telling stories using better craft. I think that we share that with film, television, and commercials. Like We share this, the, these dramatic and psychological functions which make behavior and create emotion and defo- help us understand what it is to be human. We all share that. So I think that we have that obligation uh, and that we have that in common with all the other mediums Um, but with the added sort of, I have this extra character in my story called the player and depending on what kind of game it is, like it could be a player who creates an avatar, right? Um, it could be a player who occupies an authored character, which is much easier to write a story for. Um, but you know, how can I write a story for player if, you know, they could have been like a... Like a like a twelfth level monk with unlimited freefall, or I'm actually going to be a military, uh, you know, like uh, type character who's an assault type character or heavy. Like these are r- radically different kinds of characters. How can one set of dialogue work for all of them? And it, it can't, right? So for that kind of game, you require systems, complex sort of whether it's like algorithms to change dialogue or t- tweak kinds of dialogue that fit the archetype and or, uh, you know, just recording crazy amounts of dialogue under different voices to match that. So I think that's kind of like what we're looking at now uh, in storytelling. We make a lot of sacrifices to allow the player to personalize their avatar and create the character they have. And when I say we make a lot of sacrifices, it's really hard to tell great stories when I don't know who the hero is. So that's what we're learning how to do right now.
0: Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. I mean, I think about that. It's just, just incredible. And, and, um, you know, I don't know, I don't know for, I guess at the end of the day, I I think of all of this stuff as escapism, you know, like I, I I heard someone say not, not long ago that like how important dreaming is for people. Uh, like if you don't dream you're you'll die. And, um, and in a way, I, I see that the, these worlds that are created and this escapism, and it's such such a human need to be able to, I guess, press time out on everything and then immerse yourself in this, in this in this in this thing. But um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, uh, how difficult it must be. You have two heroes in a way, right? Like you're trying to serve two people. That must be insanely difficult and and um and and what about you like do you do you still like to take the more passive route and watch films or do you are you always sort of looking at film as a way to leverage what you're doing now in games
1: yeah like i'm um very much into watching film and television uh you know with the disposable time that i have which is hardly any right now um very much uh like i'm a dga member i get my screeners every year like christmas is my favorite time of year because i get to watch all the academy award nominated films but i'm getting them now and it's just incredible um to be able to see this uh, to see those films and be inspired by the storytelling so i i still feel like that's kind of like it's always been my secret power anyway in uh in video games that um that i worked in film and television for many many years and uh and that um, I uh, I could help game teams put sort of fantastical sequences together um, for their games to create really incredible experiences for players. So I feel like that's kind of my bread and butter right now at at like shooting, like storyboarding, shooting, and then post-production, like putting together these crazy sequences. That's sort of my bread and butter. And uh, I get a lot of inspiration from film uh, and television, just like the stories that we're seeing out there. And like just especially with this like proliferation of, uh, you know, platforms for content now, like there's there's stuff that never would have been made. Right. Like five, 10 years ago, like uh, Netflix shows, Amazon shows, like there's just stuff that wouldn't have been made. And that's kind of how I see gaming uh, the the changes I see to gaming and I'm hoping happening gaming in the next year as we start being able to play on anything like we're, we're going to have consoles we're going to have streaming but every you know there's going to there's so many more ways to play games you like with stadia right now you can you can play on your tv you can play on your phone you can carry it with you everywhere so I, I feel like that's going to allow us to distribute games uh in, a, in an easier way and to, and to make games that wouldn't have wouldn't have been possible to make because the profile would be too risky. Right. So it has to be this blockbuster game. It, it has to be. And the other thing is like, I think it's what I learned a lot from film, film and television is really understanding your genres. Like this is a, something that, um, uh, games does really well is understanding what is your genre? Like what is your audience expecting from your brand? It's super key. There's some, some, uh, Anytime you, you know what genre you are and you add a little mix from another genre, it's very innovative, but you have to be really careful how you do it because audiences expect a certain thing. And I've learned that through film and television, but, but I'll sort of contradict myself. I, I just watched, um what was it, Parasite, the uh, the film that came out of South Korea, to- totally mixing genres. Like, I was just <laughs> completely blown away by the film. Like I-, I wasn't ready for how I, I walked out of that film and I was exhausted <laughs> and I was like, wow, look what they're doing. And, yeah. and so it's a sign that the director mastered all of those genres and sort of it's something that I think would be really cool to see in gaming, is somebody with a complete mastery over the genres, and, and, and can be like a maestro um, uh, for the player to create all these new kinds of experiences that they've never had before in a game. That kind of excites me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you what, what when you sit down and you think and fantasize and dream about what you could do, is there something is there something that you have clear in your mind that you would love to do? Oh
1: God. Uh, I mean, um, I think I think what I would what I want to do is I want story uh, to almost seem invisible within the game uh, around gameplay, so it doesn't feel like I just it's a lot of like the way it was even a few years ago. You'd be playing the game and then. You'd hit something, fade to black, come up, and there's a story, somebody would go get a beer, check your phone, can, you know, go back in. So it was really structured so that this is story time, this is gameplay time. And I think what I would really love to be a part of is, as a game where it's never safe to put down the controller um, or you can pause it whenever you want because there's always something happening, there's always something stimulating. The story is actually part of the gameplay. you, it, it, you don't feel like it, it it turns on or off. It's just completely part of the experience. And uh, so that excites me. Um, you know, I also love doing opening sequences for games. like I think it's like it's like super fun, exciting, uh, energetic. We did uh, we did the opening sequence for Far Cry 5 uh, last year, or was it a year, year and a half? I know it was last year. And, uh, you know, we kind of went all in, uh, we rented a, a giant gimbal, like piston driven hydraulic gimbal to, uh, to, to make a helicopter platform, a motion platform that is a helicopter. We built speed rail all around it. And we had this scene flying all around the volume, throwing people off. It was such a fun and exciting action adventure experience. Like, to me, I always want to push that. Whenever I get on a game, I'm like, okay, what did we do? How can we do something better? How can we like push the limits of, you know, of, of what this stunt's going to look like or this action's going to look like? I mean, I get really excited about creating new experiences and uh, and pushing everyone to, uh, you know, to make something that isn't an imitation of something you saw in film, but something that is like like totally new. So, I mean, that's kind of what excites me now with, especially with our new volume that we just built. Um, we've got super incredible height, a lot of space, um, some new technology in it. And uh, yeah, it would be great to sort of really push the bounds to actually surprise players.
0: I ask all my guests the same question, which is if there's someone watching this now or listening to it now that wants to do what you've done in your career, what's the best advice that you can give them?
1: I think something that I that I w- I wish I'd done earlier was tune into my bliss, and I was living my life for other people, for you know expectations that other people had on me, for my dad, and for society, and whatever it was. I I went to University of Western Ontario for three years studying something that I wasn't going to actually use, and uh, it just took me a long time to actually sit down and figure out what it is that I want to do and make me happy, because I was so busy making everybody around me happy or doing what I thought people expected of me. So that would be the first thing. When I meet somebody who's like 18 or 19 and they seem to have conviction and know what they wanna do, I'm just in awe because I so wasn't there. And, I'm, and I am and I know that's my journey and that's the way I, it happened for me, but I wished I had tuned into that earlier in my life. Um, the other thing is, I guess once you figure out what you, what you want or what you're going to do, there really isn't anything that can stop you from getting it. Like there really isn't, I mean, a lot of people, um, will, will sort of be a victim in their life and be like, oh, you know, this didn't work out. That didn't Mm -hmm. work out for me. I think when I, when I went when I finally ended up like dropping out of, I dropped out of Western and finished like 10 years later. When I finally decided I was going to do it, I, w- I I was chasing this dream of like being a director. I didn't know why I wanted to be a director, but I knew there was something that stirred deep inside me. And, uh, I just went out to Vancouver and just started just, you know, banging on doors. I got into the, to the union, uh, as a trainee, I was basically, uh, you know, crashing sets at six o'clock in the morning, volunteering. I was like, I was like watching parking lots for free, like on, uh, I'm trying to think what movie that was. It was like, uh, it was a dog movie. I can't remember what it was, but on little women, I was following the film crew around in a station wagon, sleeping in the back, volunteering every morning to see if I could get on set. And eventually They hired me and I and some luck happened and someone left and I became the training assistant director. So I think I think you have to uh, be willing to fight for what you want and just keep pursuing it. Uh, You'll get it if you just keep trying. Um, And then the other thing I think is just like don't think of education as being done when you're done. I think um there's so much we have to learn while we're uh, executing on this craft whether it's film or television or gaming there's so much you have to learn along the way that you really help yourself out by studying and learning and reading along the way to get new skills or you know to i heard someone call it a uh, a skill stack keep keep expanding your skill stack um i that has really helped me along the way to sort of reinvent myself, uh, several times, you know, over the game in, in the games industry. Cause I wanted to be more involved with story, but, you know, I didn't, I was never a writer. I, I hadn't gone to film school. I, um, so it was something that I had to do on my own and it, it, it actually has been the best thing I've done in games uh, is to learn how to be a better writer and to and actually go out and write and, and study the masters and read all the books uh, about writing screenplays. It's really helped me um, with my craft as a cinematic director, even though like I may not, you know, I'm not going to become a head writer, but just understanding it from that perspective really helped, um, you know, and uh, yeah, just like I, I think back to the first thing, which is just like really understanding what your bliss is that's super hard for some people it was really hard for me to look inward and be like okay this is what's going to make me happy and this is this is why you know i'm going to get up every day and do this because i guess when you're inspired i mean everyone knows what to do right
0: yeah i mean it's a good, it's a good way to wrap up our conversation here although we could have talked for a lot longer is that when i first met you i was watching you talk about the consoles and you were positively giddy Like you were, you were like so excited. And, um, so I guess there's something to be said for what you're talking about now, because if it is about that, then I think that you're, you're probably very much in the right place. So thanks for, thanks for coming on. I feel like I learn more and more about your world every time I have, you know, somebody from Ubisoft on, especially, uh, people as talented as you. So thanks. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks. This episode has been brought to you by the National Advertising Challenge, North America's only brief-based challenge that sends winners to Cannes, France.